0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. It was a week in which two tyrants vied for attention on the world stage. Like chest-beating wrestling villains, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin took turns with tough talk and paranoid rants. With the January 6th committee and the media uncovering more and more of Trump's post election scheming, including plots to enlist the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice, and the military in the seizure of voting machines, the former president tore into Republicans he views as disloyal and as much as promised to try to hijack the election again if he runs in 2024. Putin, who started an international crisis by massing 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border, turned his fire on the U.S. and NATO, accusing them of precipitating the showdown by refusing to rule out expansion into Russia's backyard. It remains unclear if Putin will ransack Ukraine, but if he does, the West's options for response seem few. To analyze and assess the impact of these strongman maneuvers on the domestic and international fronts, I'm really pleased to welcome a terrific set of experts, and they are Julia Yaffe, the founding partner and Washington correspondent for Puck News, a new digital company founded in 2021. After winning a Fulbright scholarship in 2009, Yaffe, a Russian-American, moved back to Russia, where she became the Moscow correspondent for The New Yorker and foreign policy and was the first Western journalist to write a comprehensive profile on Alexei Navalny. Over the course of her career, Yaffe has written about foreign policy, national security, and domestic politics for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Politico, and GQ. She often appears on television as a Russia expert. Julia Thanks so much for returning to Talking Feds.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be back.
0: Next, and for the first time on Talking Feds, Greg Sargent. Greg has been with The Washington Post since 2010, authoring political opinion pieces for the Plumline blog. Previously, he was a writer for Talking Points Memo, New York Magazine, and the New York Observer. In 2018, he wrote An Uncivil War, taking back our democracy in an age of Trumpian disinformation and Thunderdome politics, exploring the deeper roots of our democratic backsliding. Greg, thank you very much for joining. Thanks Thanks for having me on. And finally, Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon. Congresswoman Scanlon represents Pennsylvania's 5th congressional district, She currently serves on the House Judiciary Committee, among others, and chairs the House Caucuses on Access to Legal Aid and Youth Mentoring. Before her election in 2018, she was the National Pro Bono Counsel at Ballard Spar LLP for 15 years. She also served as an attorney at the Education Law Center, president of her local school board, and co-chair of the Voting Rights Task Force, of the Association of Pro Bono Counsel. She's a multiple returning guest on Talking Feds. It's always a pleasure to welcome you, Congresswoman. Thanks so much for being here.
2: Always look forward to the conversation.
0: Let's start with the former president who's had quite a week. For months, the press and the department and the 1-6 committee have been trying to reconstruct the past, and we'll get to that. But first, this week, we have an apparent New public campaign by Trump to discredit the election, undermine the prosecutions of the 1 6 insurrectionists and the investigations of his family, and come right out and threaten a repeat in 2024. So maybe that doesn't surprise us, but let me just ask why now? What's he trying to do inserting himself at this juncture? with a reminder that he is everything that he is.
2: I think it's because he's being hit by so much bad news. I mean, between grand jury investigations and potential charges in a couple different states, the steady and escalating, I believe, drumbeat of bad information and people cooperating with the January 6th commission has him nervous. But I, I don't think we can call it a new campaign campaign. Because it's classic Trump. It's saying, I'm going to sue you if you get crosswise of me. It's saying, I'm going to pardon you if you keep your mouth shut, because he's been saying that since the Mueller investigation. And it's saying the part that he should keep his mouth shut about out
0: loud. Everything that the congresswoman says is right, but it seems to me more forward looking. Here he's drawing the line and saying, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to pardon again flirting that I'm going to run again. Of
1: course, he's going to say that again. I think like Putin, he still hasn't decided if he's going to run. Remember, this is somebody who said while trying to win the evangelical vote that he's never asked forgiveness from God because he has nothing to ask forgiveness for. So like he's not going to ask God for forgiveness. Like why is he going to ask the American people for forgiveness? He is a narcissist who thinks everything he does is brilliant and right. Of course, he would do anything to hold on to power as he's clearly demonstrated.
3: He has in one of his books, the sort of dictum that you never admit you're wrong. And I guess that also applies to coming face to face with the divine, too.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) So why is he parachuting in at this particular juncture? Do you agree with the congresswoman? It's because there's just such a steady drumbeat of bad news for him.
3: Yeah, I do. And I would actually add a couple of things to that. There are two reasons that I can see why he's doing this right now. One is to build on what the congresswoman said that the January 6th committee is actually coming up with the goods. So what Trump needs above all is to drive as many Republicans into the full insurrection camp as he possibly can, so that they will be on his side when the full truth comes out. And so by drawing a stark line right now that requires Republicans to either be for full insurrection and full immunity for Trump, no matter what's uncovered, He sort of fortifies his defenses, I think. And by the way, we're actually seeing that work right now because the Republican National Committee is now censuring Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for precisely the act of holding Trump accountable for attempting to foment an insurrection.
0: And as you suggest, there's not even the slightest hint of trying to go in the other way except the concern That if they're too harsh on them, then the focus becomes their own infighting. I wrote a
3: piece on this. And what's fascinating to me is that what we're seeing here is that the more incriminating stuff that comes out, the more pressure Kevin McCarthy is under to whitewash it and stand behind it. It's as if there's no pressure on Republicans at all (laughs) to actually move in the direction of more accountability as more stuff comes out, which is really, really something
0: else. It's Not just the substance, but the technique of Trump of redoubling down, calling the worst thing perfect, actually having rhetorically to go farther out there, the worst things look. Yeah.
2: Well, isn't it very similar to what we're seeing in Ukraine with Putin deliberately putting out there, oh, they're attacking me. It's not me attacking democracy. And the same kind of spin of just ramping up the disinformation so that you can change
3: reality. That sort of feeds into what I was just about to suggest. The second reason that Trump may be doing this, which is he's very visibly and conspicuously trying to install as many loyalists as possible in positions of control over the election machinery. And like you said earlier, I think we don't know whether he'll run again or not. I think there's a reasonable chance he won't because Trumpism turns very heavily on this kind of highly propagandistic depiction of invincibility and a bottomless pool of base support that can never really be shaken. And so I think a lot of that is just sort of that type of bluster. And he's actually would be pretty weak in 2024, I think. Although I certainly would never guarantee that he couldn't win because he's, I think, a unique political talent in many respects.
0: But he is in an interesting position, it strikes me, because coexistent with this bluster and apparent bottomless confidence is a real paranoid streak. And now he's on the outside. 475 people cooperating with the committee. He doesn't know what they've said. Pence's top folks have cooperated and possibly said some very damning things. And he has to be passive and await the bomb. So maybe that's part of it as well. He just can't stand not to be in the action and trying to shape the actual dialogue.
3: It's interesting because in drawing this line that we've been talking about, it also compels more Republicans into kind of battlefield positions of taking control of the election machinery, right? Like More candidates are worked up about the mythology of the stolen election. And the more public he is, the the more likely it is he can get some people into position and then the base will hold them to that promise of being faithful to Trump's lies about the election. and lies about the next election if he runs and loses think about david Perdue, right the candidate in the republican primary against governor brian kemp who's endorsed by trump has said publicly that he wouldn't have certified the biden electors in 2020 and i feel like people aren't focused enough on this that means he's running on an implicit promise to not certify the rightful electors in 2024. And a governor in a position like that, combined with a Republican-controlled House, if ever an election comes down to one state, can actually overturn the results, depending on how the courts rule on it.
0: That's part of what I meant by the forward-looking statements from him. Yeah. It puts real pressure, it seems to me, on the GOP. It's one thing to just finesse away or say something non-committal about the previous episode. I think this puts pressure on Republicans to essentially do just what you say, commit to the base that it doesn't matter, come hell or high water, whatever the vote is. We're going to take control of the machinery and make it a Trump victory or a GOP victory.
2: I think that's the part that I find scarier. It's how successful he's been at undermining the idea of fair elections and that there is kind of a standard and there should be bipartisanship and everybody should be working to make elections work, as opposed to this narrative, which people are buying into, at least on his side, that it's all about working the machinery. That it actually is easy to cheat. In Pennsylvania, we did have five or six instances of election fraud in 2020, and they were all Trump voters who believed him and tried to vote for dead relatives or you know other relatives or that kind of thing. So getting people into those positions who are actively trying to manipulate the machinery, I think, is a problem. I agree with Greg that long term, yes, Trump is a unique figure, but you know there are cracks in the facade, even on some of the Trumpiest social media sites that I see in our region, you know, there's people, they're angry that certain things that he's done, like getting vaccinated, that there are chinks in the armor. And, you know, he's made some bad candidate decisions. So if he starts not being invincible, then we may see some of the Republicans peeling off. But the fact that there's been such undermining of the whole electoral system really, really troubles me and, and that people think, It's something to be gamed when it's not.
0: I want to just add one point to that, which is something that is so odious about his most recent statements, which is in a country that is because of him in large part so polarized, there was at least... An emerging consensus over what you would think would be an uncontroversial bedrock idea that domestic terrorists rushing the Capitol and physically assaulting members of Congress is a bad thing. And he's now going straight to the jugular on that and trying to reconvert that scenario. Even this little bit of bipartisan understanding could quickly erode, and we could just have one total fiction. And point of view and a siloed separation, even as to that. Let's start with machinery. Uh, You know, a kind of head spinning detail is that it turns out memos were written, and it looks like maybe all coming from Trump himself about the prospect of. Banana Republic as it gets seizing the voting machines, trying to get either Department of Defense or Homeland Security or DOJ. Greg, you wrote about it that it provides a big opening to flesh out key unknowns about his overall scheme. Let's start there. What what are you referring to? One of the things that seems to me to be most important here is to establish as firmly
3: as possible the full intention to subvert the political system and and our constitutional order in the full knowledge that he was actually not robbed in any sense. Now, there's sort of a discourse out there which holds that, oh, Trump actually believes that the election was stolen, or Trump voters actually believe. And I feel like when we kind of go down that rabbit hole, we're going the wrong way. What we should be saying is that Trump, and I think, large swaths of his supporters and certainly his co-conspirators fully understood themselves to be stealing an election which is different than actually believing delusionally that it was taken from him and trying to right that wrong and so every time something like that is established where the mechanism for overturning his loss was a highly illicit one it kind of underscores the degree to which the whole enterprise was deeply corrupt and really autocratic at its core, fundamentally about overturning the constitutional order at its core. And so one thing that I'm looking for the committee to establish is to, to take that and then be able to establish, based on his conduct during the violence, that he came to see the violence as instrumental to overturning the election. I think that's the sort of throbbing core of this whole thing. And I'm pretty convinced that that's what the committee is bearing down on from all the signs that we're seeing. I think it's hard to read the script of what he said to incite the rallyers as full intent to use violence to overturn the election. But him sitting there as the violence raged with the Republicans pleading with him to call off the rioters And with him telling Kevin McCarthy, look, Kevin, I guess they're more upset about the election than you, we're very close to establishing that he allowed the violence to rage deliberately in order to delay the outcome. That's the key thing right there.
2: And layering onto that, that he and Giuliani were continuing to make calls to senators into the early evening. The rest of us were hunkered down, barricaded behind my door there. And they're still making calls to senators saying, yeah, keep it going. We want you to do a little bit more because we haven't gotten them to call it off yet.
3: That's absolutely crucial. I totally agree. I I forget exactly how it went, but they called Mike Lee by mistake.
2: they were trying to call Tubaville. Yeah, and they got Lee. And
3: I think either Trump or Giuliani or both pressed him to secure a delay. The delay was the key. So to the degree to which they saw the violence as instrumental and helpful to securing that delay, Then we get very close to potential criminality, at least according to the lawyers I've interviewed on this. And one last point, which I still think escapes a lot of people's attention, Vice President Pence reportedly said to his security detail that he would under no circumstances be removed from the premises. I interviewed Richard Ben Beniste about this, the 9-11 Commission official, and he thinks that's a highly significant moment for the following reason that feeds into what we're talking about. Pence must have had some sense of what would happen if he were removed, that is, if a delay were secured. So he surely understood that to be part of the scheme and potentially hugely threatening. And I think we need to know more about that.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of what we've seen come out the last week or so about what Pence knew, particularly with this scheme to have the alternate electors in place. Yeah. And the fact that he changed the wording of what he read on the floor in a way that seemed to acknowledge that idea. We've been particularly focused on the alternate electors in Pennsylvania because they gave themselves an out in Pennsylvania. They didn't forge the seal here. They gave themselves some wiggle room, which is is interesting. You mentioned lawyers' take on this, you know, the part that I've been fascinated by is what did Bill Barr know and when did he know it? Because his resignation in the middle of December always just stunk of something bad happening and that he just couldn't do it anymore and he just had to get out. But this timeline we're seeing develop really makes it look like the machinery of overthrowing the government had been put in motion and he wasn't going to go along with it. So I'm, I'm fascinated by that.
3: Underscoring that, I think, is that on the timeline, I could be wrong about this, but I believe the New York Times reporting was able to establish that Trump floated the idea of the Department of Justice somehow seizing the voting machines as evidence of fake fraud in late November, which would mean it came pretty soon before Barr gave that AP interview in which he said there hadn't been serious fraud. And so if you think about the timeline there, it meshes with what you're talking about with Barr being pressed to engage in such
0: profoundly corrupt and potentially criminal
3: action that he had to kind of publicly blow it up in some sense.
0: I think that's right. And Barr advised him expressly, we don't have the power to do this. You know, Barr's book is coming out next month, and you have to imagine, just given the guy he is where he is in public life, that there'll be some real stuff in there. I just want to point out that I agree, Greg, that we're talking about the throbbing core and this evidence. I've actually written a piece about the inaction during those three hours and why it, in fact, supports criminal liability. But I think what the last few weeks are bringing home is it's just the very last of a whole Chain of strategies and schemes. And by that point, it was just to try to delay, impede, which matters under the criminal law. But I think it's more and more linked from the very beginning, late November, as you say, the Clark attempt to kind of have a coup within the Department of Justice, now the seizing of the machines, the Eastman memo, which this seems to feed into. I think it's looking more and more as if. The final conflagration of 1-6 is really just a last gasp delay of a really concerted and consistent chain of conduct starting shortly after the election.
3: The Jeffrey Clark angle is really important in, in fleshing out this narrative, too, because he was in the middle of efforts to use the Department of Justice to create a fake sense that the election had been fraudulent, and indeed, he even tried to send that letter using the official seal of the Department of Justice, to state legislatures urging them to consider holding special sessions in order to potentially revisit the voting and decide somehow that it was fraudulent and then consider appointing separate electors. So there you had an active effort to corrupt the Department of Justice into playing a key role in the scheme that was essentially laid out in the Eastman memo, which was to use Pence to secure the delay. And as we talked about earlier, they tried to get senators to do that and potentially saw the violence as helpful to do that. They used the the DOJ to try and get states to send separate electors. I don't know that the end game works. This is something that I think a lot of people have tried to figure out. But with Pelosi not going along, I'm not sure what ends up happening, actually.
0: Look, I think the endgame or what is worrisome about 2024 is just getting the hell out of the courts, making it go back to the states with some kind of political chaos so individual Republican constituencies can work their will. Hey there, Talking Fed listeners. We know you care about what's happening across the country, from policy to current events and beyond. Tragically, no issue touches the lives of every American quite like the issue of gun violence. For a weekly deep dive into gun violence in the United States, including first-hand accounts, policy efforts, and so much more, check out Red, Blue, and Brady. Brought to you by Brady, one of the oldest and boldest gun violence prevention groups out there. If you'd like to learn more about Brady's work, follow us on Twitter at Buzz, And don't forget to listen to Red, Blue, and Brady wherever you get your podcasts. Let's just take a couple minutes to talk about politics and how that's figuring in and the state of play. As of a month ago, lots of doomsday predictions that the Democrats had their back against the wall and were really looking at a possible debacle in November. Has the profile changed now? And if so, how? I mean, I
3: find it hard to imagine that the historical patterns will be overcome. Virginia votes very badly in terms of the amount of energy that the Trump base and the Republican base is showing, even without Trump on the ballot. And so that seems like a major problem, although Democratic turnout was also better than we thought. That supercharged Republican turnout seems hard to overcome. You know, the flip side would be that we saw great jobs numbers today, or at least it's a bit of a mixed report, but it was far better than most people expected so we could see the economy really continue to boom we could see covid recede we could see inflation
0: recede i mean the economy is actually doing well but people don't seem to be aware of it yeah
3: i think that democrats have to figure out and
0: how to get out there and tell a much more positive story
3: and stop talking about about failure all the time right on bbb and so forth and hopefully we can get something on that i'd like to see them do some sort of limited package and if they do maybe the taint of all that failure and infighting goes away. So I I wouldn't rule anything out, but it just seems tough to overcome those historical patterns. I'd love to ask the congressman a question on this, if I could.
2: Sure. I'm not conceding failure. (laughs) It was, you know, four or five trillion dollars of relief we pushed out last year, but...
3: Oh, oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Let me clarify that. All I mean is that we're just talking constantly about why we couldn't get mentioned and what went wrong.
2: Speak for
3: yourself. Well, look, you know, the media, the more Democrats talking about success, the better for Democrats and there is success. That's the thing, right? Absolutely. But can I ask, connecting all these threads together, if Kevin McCarthy is the speaker, right, all it takes is one Republican governor in a state that's decisive to send a fake slate of electors and Kevin McCarthy counts them, then they can steal the election that way. Is there some way to get voters to realize that a Republican House in particular poses a severe threat to democracy? Is there a way to do that?
2: It's really tough because it's so many steps down the road. We're confronting this directly in Pennsylvania right now. This week was Groundhog Day. And apparently, the groundhog came out of his borough, saw the Pennsylvania legislature, went back, <laughs> and you know, we don't get maps for another six weeks. It's just nuts. But Pennsylvania is going to go from a tie, 9-9, to someone's going to have the edge. And so our map should be the hardest fought in the country because of this threat that in the next presidential election, this thing could get tipped into the House and electoral votes don't matter. But getting even our legislators to focus on this, you know, and the folks who are drawing the lines is almost impossible. It's it's too far away. It's too remote. As far as
1: I'm concerned, it's a five alarm fire. We are still pretty far out from the election, but you know historical patterns plus the effectiveness, I think, of the Republican messaging machine in pushing inflation, 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 even though the economy is clearly improving and the inflation itself is kind of one of the symptoms of this economic recovery. The Republicans I speak to in Washington are all confident that they're going to get a historical kind of once in a generation majority in the House, that they'll probably flip the Senate. And what's striking to me about that is going back to what we discussed about January 6th is that this is happening as all this news is coming out about what happened on January 6th, how far the Republicans and the Trump administration were prepared to go, how far they did actually go. Yes, you have to factor in gerrymandering and disinformation and the fact that Americans now live in this kind of bifurcated informational space. It is stunning that what we're looking at, you know, if all things stay the same, which they won't, but that voters are going to handsomely reward the party that tried to overthrow the U.S. government. At that point, it's like, what's the point of this commission just to kind of set down a historical marker and to begin the historical investigation of this event for future historians? Because it doesn't seem to be having an effect politically.
3: Is there some more general way of making the headlong plunge into extreme radicalization that we're seeing from Republicans, an issue in the midterms. I mean, you've got Republican legislatures passing laws that are designed to whitewash our past and muzzle teachers. They're running in primaries that are being decided by who can be more loyal to Trump's lies about the election. In some cases, they're running on an explicit promise to be ready to overthrow a future election. Is there some way to make Republican radicalization
2: matter to people. I'm hoping that's where we're headed. There's an article in the Philadelphia Papers today about how much money is being spent still on trying to audit the 2020 election and how there's no evidence that there was any problem. I grew up in northern New York, and there's been one Democratic congressman in that district. It's currently Elise Stefanik's district, although that's going to change a little bit in the next round. But that happened when Sarah Palin tried to come in, I think, in 2010 and mess with that election and try to pull things too far to the right. I think that could be what overturns the idea that midterms are always a rebuke of whoever's got the White House, is it's just going too far. The Republicans are not putting forth any ideas, at least any That are American. I mean, they're talking about banning books and supporting right-wing extremist ideas and more guns and a lot of stuff that most of America is not interested in. We've been really heartened by the administration over the last few weeks sending out ambassadors. If you're a cabinet member, you better have frequent flyer miles right now because they're coming out. We had Pete Buttigieg talking about bridges and I had the head of the EPA talking about Superfund sites and trying to do what you're talking about, which is talking about, yeah, we're actually doing the governing. Now, the hard part is that the Republicans are claiming credit for all the bridges and everything that they voted against. But, you know, I'm just going to keep going with being the party of sanity and hoping that there's a contrast.
0: Time now for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today, we cover the Facebook whistleblower and the potential legal concerns presented by the documents she leaked, specifically the eight complaints she and her attorneys filed with the SEC. And to tell us about that, we have Natasha Legero an accomplished actress, writer, and stand-up comedian who has garnered attention across film, television, and the web. She rose to fame after appearing as the host of MTV's The 70s House in 2005 and later created and starred in the Comedy Central sitcom Another Period. Leggero has starred in two comedy films, Neighbors alongside Seth Rogen and Let's Be Cops, opposite Jake Johnson and Damon Wyans Jr. And she's appeared in a number of series, including Chelsea Lately, CBS sitcom Broke, NBC's Community, FX's It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, not least Arrested Development, and many others. She now hosts the weekly podcast, The Endless Honeymoon Podcast, with her husband and fellow comedian Moshe Kasher. And you can find their 2018 special, The Honeymoon Stand-Up Special, on Netflix. So I give you Natasha Legero.
4: Frances Hogan, a former Facebook employee turned whistleblower, testified before Congress in early October about documents and information that she leaked to both lawmakers and the public. Hogan focused mostly on Facebook's failure to publicize internal studies and surveys that showed the harmful effects of the company's products, including... The spread of misinformation, the proliferation of hate speech, and the negative body image of young women. The documents present clear moral concerns, but what about the potential legal concerns? Hagen and her attorneys have filed eight complaints with the Securities and Exchange Commission. The gist of the legal claims is that Facebook violated securities laws by failing to disclose the various data present in the leaked documents to investors and others. Publicly, Facebook continues to insist on the safety and popularity of its products. And yet, according to Hagen, the internal records demonstrate an emphasis on profit over people. Hagen's attorneys allege that beyond a moral misstep, Facebook executives materially, unquote, misrepresented the company's products to investors and potential investors. Essentially, in not publicizing the internal studies and data, Facebook broadcast a false image of its financial outlook. The legal prospects for the Hagen SEC complaints are unclear, but the political fallout for Facebook already has been significant and has prompted calls for legislative action. Senate Democrat Amy Klobuchar and Senate Republican John Kennedy recently introduced a bipartisan bill to curb social media's power. The Social Media Privacy Protection and Consumer Rights Act would grant users greater control over the use of their information on sites like Facebook. In July, Klobuchar introduced additional legislation aimed at preventing the spread of medical misinformation by carving out further exceptions to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which currently provides broad immunity to tech companies for content liability. Facebook, in turn, is hinting at legal action against Hagen for her role in publicizing the documents. Although whistleblower laws protect Hagen's delivery of the documents to public institutions like Congress and the SEC, the sharing of the materials to media and the press may provide a legal challenge. Thus, Facebook could try to come after Hagen for alleged violations of her non-disclosure agreement with the company. On the other hand, Employees like Hagen enjoy a measure of protection based on public policy. Moreover, the decision to prosecute a former employee for blowing the whistle likely would reflect poorly on the company, while it already stands mired in criticism. For Talking Feds, I'm Natasha Legero, and I hate the internet.
0: Thank you very much to the multi-talented Natasha Legero. Natasha's new cooking competition show, Rat in the Kitchen, premieres on March 31st on TBS. So for weeks, Russia's been building up military forces on the border of Ukraine and more than 100,000 troops are at the border. But it feels just recently as if the situation on the ground has kind of frozen and the jockeying is at the diplomatic level. So let me just start very basically, Julia, if I can ask you, you've written extensively on this. Where are we? I
1: feel like we're kind of running in place at this point. I think you put it really aptly that it's frozen on the ground. I feel like every day brings new incremental developments or news like the revelation yesterday that Russia might be planning a kind of false flag operation to Give itself an excuse to invade Ukraine.
0: By the way, that was amazing. Can you just elaborate on that for a second? That blew my mind.
1: It's amazing on several levels to me. This is the second time the US government has revealed a plan like this in the last month. I believe a couple of weeks ago, the Biden administration revealed that they believe that Russia is planning a plot to blow up some of its own people in the separatist controlled areas of the Donbass, or I would say Russian controlled areas. It's amazing to me because I wouldn't put it past the Russian government to do that. There's always this undercurrent with Vladimir Putin because there are a lot of people who believe, not without evidence, that one of the ways he came to power was having the FSB blow up apartment buildings in Russia and killing hundreds of people to give himself a pretext to reinvade Chechnya. To me, it's just, I think... Russia constantly accuses the U.S. of provocation, of provocation, which usually they mean a false flag type situation because that's what they do, right? So it's this like amazing act of psychological projection. Since they're doing it, they believe we must be doing it. And so they're constantly accusing us of the thing that they're doing. So I think it's actually been pretty smart of both the British government, which also unmasked a different alleged plot by the Russian government to install a government in Kiev that would be more friendly to Moscow than the Zelensky government. So I think it's actually quite a brilliant strategy to unmask these plots or alleged plots because it kind of defangs them. And now if Russia were to go ahead and do something like this, people would say, wait a minute, didn't we hear about this?
0: (laughs) It's like the ultimate demonstration of his indifference to his citizens and also like a perfect Potemkin village, but for the 21st century. Let me just stick with you for a second. I've read your stuff on Puckin. You write on the one hand, it's all with Putin. It's all his decision. Fiona Hill and you in discussion seem to think, well, he can't be caught out as bluffing. On the other hand, you seem to think that he's vacillating. I think you compared him to Hamlet. So do you think he hasn't decided
1: I don't know that he will necessarily invade. What I'm hearing from my U.S. and British sources is they think it's a done deal that he will absolutely invade. I am not as convinced. I mean, I think it's more likely than not, but I don't think it's 100%. I'll have something out in Puck next week speaking to a foreign policy scholar who's very close to the Kremlin who kind of explains their thinking. And to me, it resonates as much more realistic and descriptive of the truth than what I'm hearing in Washington, which is, I think, again, this is a uh, escalate to de-escalate situation. And that I think that they might still end up invading if they don't get something close to what they want. But escalate to de-escalate, it's become shorthand in kind of foreign policy circles to describe what Putin does, which is crank up the pressure, ask for the impossible, shoot for the moon knowing that you won't get 100% of what you asked for. But if you walk away with 40% of what you asked for, that's still 40% better than what you had before doing this, right? You end up with something that you didn't have before. It still has it kind of improved the situation in your favor. And I still think that that's what the Kremlin is hoping for here. They might still invade. I'm not as convinced that it's a done deal. And
0: it does seem lately like it's been this sort of stalled rhetoric. Let me just stay with you for one more second. You say if he gets what he wants, initially, it seemed what he wanted was a land grab of Ukraine. Now, if I understand right, it seems to be that he's looking at NATO and NATO to not have an open door policy or he's saying what he wants has something to do with the United States and NATO. How would you summarize what he wants?
1: I don't think he ever wanted a land grab. Well, (laughs) That's a lie for 2014. He did a land grab. I don't think what he wants now is necessarily a land grab. I think he wants NATO to kind of chill out, roll back, and not get any closer to his borders. I think he wants even more of a buffer zone around him that he's created with Belarus, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, like all the former Soviet republics. I think he sees it as a negotiation of Russian security. So, Getting NATO to agree to not put missile defense systems too close to his border, not to take any more countries close to his border. I'm pretty sure that Putin and people in Russia understand that this, you know, we want a written legally binding guarantee that NATO won't accept Ukraine. I think everybody, including the Russians, knows that's impossible. I think everybody, including the Kremlin, knows that it's an impossible ask to get NATO to roll back its military posture to 1997 levels. But again, you might as well ask because you don't know what what you might end up getting as a result. You know, he's getting older. He's been in isolation for a long time. I think he's been informationally isolated for a long time. And then with COVID, he is quite physically isolated. And I think he sees this as part of his legacy. He's cleared the ground in Russia of any opposition. Everyone's gone or in jail. And this is kind of the last jewel in the crown is to guarantee the safety of Russia's borders. I think it's very important to keep in mind the historical context here, which is Russia's ruling classes from the Tsars to the Bolsheviks to Vladimir Putin. They always have a fortress mentality and It's kind of self-creating, self-reinforcing, this idea that Russia is surrounded by enemies, that it can be attacked at any time. And Russia has been invaded with like terrible, bloody, tragic effects. So it plays well with the population because these aren't impossible fictions to them. But this feeling of vulnerability, of feeling like a besieged fortress is a very key part of Kremlin thinking, no matter who's in the Kremlin. And I think it's really important to understand that that's what we're dealing with.
0: And you've suggested it's also actually part of the national sentiment to want a strong country. Let me open this up, Greg and the Congresswoman. We we spent the first half of this episode talking about the former president. Greg, you tweeted out earlier this week that Putin's current threat has to be based in part on his calculation that Trump's divisiveness and assault on U.S. democracy has weakened us. Can you elaborate? Well, what I meant by that is that the
3: perception that The U.S. is in decline, which I think we have heard a lot of lately from certain international quarters, is plainly fueled by the the lingering impacts of Trump's effort to overthrow our election. It's got to look from the outside to see the Republican Party going all in with full insurrection at this point and essentially taking off the table the very idea of accountability for the effort to overthrow our constitutional order, that's got to look like a country that's so deeply divided and with institutions that are in such decay that we can't really muster up
0: collective responses anymore. And who are we to try to chide them when we're such a mess ourselves? Let me follow up on that, and maybe I can ask you, Congresswoman, about this bizarre domestic wrinkle here, which is the Tucker Carlson situation, there seemed to be among the most Trumpy Trumpists a view that the U.S. should be, in fact, supporting Putin, throwing its weight behind Putin, even as what remains of an establishment Republican Party, starting perhaps with McConnell, is still very pro-sanctions and bullish on that. Do you have a sense of what's going on with your colleagues on the other side of the aisle and how it all sort of fits in?
2: I think it's called Trump induced schizophrenia. I mean, it's been really tough all week to listen to these floor speeches with people coming up and saying we demand a strong response to support the Ukraine and to push back against Russia. It's like, wait a minute. We just got over this thing where you told us that, yeah, the Ukraine, it's okay. They're just there to do us a favor, though, and to support Russian talking points. So there's no consistency here. The only consistency, I guess, is opposing anything the Biden administration suggests and continuing to allow Putin to play the puppeteer and pull strings.
0: Julia, you say you're not sure he'll invade. And if he does go in, though, it seems to me that Biden doesn't really have a great hand. As you've mentioned, they're impervious to sanctions. Biden's already said he won't send troops, just weapons. But Ukraine's army is pitifully outmatched. Europe, I think you've written, is still very dependent on Russia energy sources. It might do something to freeze the assets of Russian oligarchs, but that's really, you think, not going to happen. So am I right that you know U.S. strategy should be to do everything it can to prevent some kind of engagement. But if it happens, our choices are few.
1: Yeah, and I think that's also part of Putin's ideas to kind of show that, isn't that interesting that you don't want to fight for this part of the world and you don't have much that you can do about this part of the world? Could it be that it's because it's our sphere of influence and not yours? And the fact that there's already been an invasion of Ukraine. It happened in 2014 and Nord Stream 2 was built after that. And Europe hasn't really done much to diversify away from its dependence on Russian oil and gas after there was an invasion in 2014. So I have no doubt that the Russians are like, mm-hmm, sure, okay, yeah, you're <laughs> going to say, okay, sure, good luck with that. I do want to get back to the kind of the domestic aspect of it. I think Russia has become, especially since 2016, it's become what we really talk about when we talk about Russia. We're talking about ourselves. It's a very apt demonstration of the horseshoe theory, where you have people like Tucker Carlson and people like Glenn Greenwald, who are now buddies. And Glenn Greenwald is frequently on Tucker Carlson's show.
0: Where their paths crossed.
1: Right. And so, what I've seen, especially on social media, is people from the hard left and the hard right agreeing that Russia's the party we should be supporting and Russia's the better place. For the right, it's because Russia is this ideal for them that doesn't actually exist in real life, that it's this white Christian kingdom of traditional values, which is not what it looks like in real life on the ground. And for the hard left, it's buying into the Kremlin propaganda that Ukraine is just all neo-Nazis. So again, it's just become a foil for us talking about, You know, I think a lot of Americans are just extremely self- absorbed and provincial and don't really know what's going on outside of the American borders. And when they think about it, they just project U.S. ideas, U.S. concepts on other parts of the world. And so we get Tucker Carlson and the Glenn Greenwalds of the world agreeing on something that has nothing to do with reality.
2: I was just going to say that's also consistent with kind of the Trump View of Russia. It's about putting a Trump hotel in, you know, the middle of Red Square or whatever. Not looking at the values and, you know, what it does to democracy. That's not really part of the equation for him. So it's kind of part of the same worldview,
1: mm-hmm.
2: or lack of worldview.
1: Yeah.
0: So in a sense, we assume that American values mean something there or have some purchase, and it's just a complete bumbling miscalculation.
1: Well, it's what Putin has always insisted that when we are in the world saying we believe in democracy and human rights and freedom of speech and all this stuff, Putin and the Russian government are like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And they think that it's the same thing that they do. They're very kind of realpolitik approach to geopolitics. They dress it up with some nice sounding bullshit excuse me, and insist that that's why they're doing it. And so they think that's exactly what the U.S. is doing, that we don't believe in any of this stuff, that we're doing any all of this for oil to pressure Russia, whatever cynical explanation you want to insert there. And I think the Trump administration proved their point perfectly.
0: Yeah. And our own internal strife over what had been kind of bedrock values seems to feed that
1: One
3: thing that I think is interesting about the dynamic that Julia was talking about with the quote-unquote populist right and the Glenn Greenwalds of the world, and I'd love to ask about this and hear more. It seems to me that what you see in someone like Tucker Carlson and maybe Josh Hawley to some degree and in kind of a a big chunk of what we call the new right these days is a kind of alignment with what you might call a right-wing authoritarian international of some kind and mm-hmm. it feels a little to me like someone like greenwald who i don't know if, it would, if he's even on the left anymore but it feels to me like certain types of leftists who are in that sort of camp too aren't necessarily aligned with the right-wing international but are more suspicious of liberal internationalism and anti-war and i wondered if julia could kind of talk about those dynamics some more, because I still find myself trying to figure out this right wing international a little bit because we have Tucker playing a Orban. There was that long article in the New York Times about the new rights infatuation with Hungary. And it seems to me to feed directly in to this type of positioning on Russia and Ukraine. And I'd like to understand that better.
1: Me too. I don't know. I I mean, again, I think they come to it from different ideological starting points, but they end up, at least in terms of this, in a very similar position. I don't know if you saw the tweet that the Democratic Socialists of America put out the other day that they call on the Biden administration and the U.S. government to stop their bloodthirsty, saber-rattling in Ukraine and stop trying to pull Russia into war. And I I was like, what planet are you on? Yeah. Right. It's like they have their own template for what they'd like to see. And they stuff reality into it to make it fit their ideological template.
3: One thing that I'd love to understand better about that, too, is when you have that type of DSA take on what's happening, they tend to adopt a very similar framing to Tucker, which is. The only thing that's at issue is whether we go to war with Russia or not. I did a piece about Tucker and the international right, and I got absolutely swarmed all day by bots saying this. The framing was always, you want war with Russia, why do you want war with Russia? Right. And missing from the equation entirely is what the Biden administration's actual stance is, but also... The fact that this is also about Ukraine, that just gets erased.
1: Well, and the fact that this started because Russia amassed over 100,000 troops and has basically surrounded Ukraine, like that's where we started. If I can just throw in there kind of the
2: piece that that we haven't talked about and, and something the president brings up all the time is that in his conversations with Putin and also Xi Jinping, he says that they say to him, They don't think democracy can work in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And so with Putin's predilection for just always pushing and pushing and pushing, he's pushing to see if there's a response.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. Seeing the two of them at the Olympics, it reminds me of Van Applebaum's piece about, you know, how the bad guys are winning. It does seem like given what we're going through and the and I think the January 6th investigation or its struggles are kind of indicative of this. Like if I were an alien coming to the world and looking at this, I'd be like, well, seems like the authoritarian countries are doing a lot better. (laughs) Well, this is where I
2: think it's interesting that the strategy to push back is to call out the disinformation that we know is coming. Yes. Because it's disinformation that's gotten us to this point with people just repeating lies over and over again. Well, okay, here's a strategy. Will it work? I don't know. But I'm kind of interested in it as, you know, an inoculation technique.
0: All right. We have just a minute left for our final feature of Talking Five, in which we take a question from a listener, and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. Today's question is Olympics-related. The Winter Olympics just began in China, and in their opening ceremony, they had a carefully selected duo To light the final flame, a man and a woman athlete. One of the two was a Uyghur and therefore implicitly addressing all the criticism China is getting for its human rights abuses. So, our question for the panel today is if the Winter Olympics were being held in the United States, who would you have light the Olympic flame? One of our essential workers.
2: I love five words or fewer, and I had too many answers. So being from Philadelphia, I was going to have to say gritty, but maybe not quite the Olympic <laughs> spirit, although he is very everyman. What I would say is a woman for Title IX, because this summer's the 50th anniversary of Title IX, and we have a lot of great candidates.
0: That's a good one.
1: Ban the Olympics. <laughs> <That I hate. laughs>
0: Here's what I got. Liz Cheney, and Lynn manuel Miranda. All right, we're out of time. Thank you very much to Julia, Greg, and Congresswoman Scanlon. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can check us out on the web talkingfeds.com and you can look to see our latest offerings on patreon where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters in the past week we've posted an exclusive conversation with every town for gun Safety's senior director of research sarah bird sharps about the alarming spike in gun violence against children And a Talking Book bonus episode with Noah Tishby about her recent volume, Israel, A Simple Guide to the Most Misunderstood Country on Earth. There's really a wealth of great stuff there, and you can go look at it to see what we've got and decide if you'd like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henrikson, assistant producer Matt Mcardle, sound engineering by Adam Macias, David Lieberman, and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Ria Cohen Gilbert. Kalena Tano and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to Natasha Leggero for explaining the legal situation with the Facebook whistleblower. And our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Litman. Talk to you later.